Hi guys, it's Ange. So today we are reading The Gray Cells of M. Quiro and the first of the short stories of Hercule. And that is The Affair at the Victory Ball. So we're just going to get right into it. The Affair at the Victory Ball Formerly chief of the Belgian force, my friend Hercule Poirot came to England as a refugee in the early days of the war. Pure chance led him to be connected with the case which I have already chronicled elsewhere under the title of The Mysterious Affair at Stiles. His success brought him notoriety and he decided to remain in the country and devote himself to the solving of problems and crime. Having been wounded on the Somme and invalided out of the army, I finally took up my quarters with him in London. Since I have first-hand knowledge of most of his cases, it has been suggested to me that I select some of the most interesting and place them on record. In doing so, I feel that I cannot do better then begin with the strange tangle which aroused such widespread public interest at the time. I refer to the affair at the Victory Ball. Although perhaps it is not so fully fully demonstrative of Poirot's peculiar methods as some of the more obscure cases, its sensational features, the well-known people involved, and the tremendous publicity given it by the press make it stand out as a cause celebre and I have long felt that it is only fitting that Poirot's connection with the solution should be given to the world. It was a fine morning in mid-spring, and we were sitting in Poirot's rooms, my little friend, neat and dapper as ever, his egg-shaped little head tilted slightly on one side, was delicately applying a new pomade to his mustache. A certain harmless vanity was a characteristic of Poirot's and fell into line with his general love and order of method. Of what are you thinking so deeply, mon ami? To tell you the truth, I replied, I was, I was puzzling over this unaccountable affair at the victory ball. I tapped the paper with my finger as I spoke. Yes, the more one reads of it, the more shrouded in mystery the whole thing becomes, I warned to my subject. Who killed Lord Cronshaw? Was Coco Courtney's death on the same night a mere coincidence? Was it an accident? Or did she deliberately take an overdose of cocaine? I stopped and then added dramatically, these are the questions I ask myself. Poirot, somewhat to my annoyance, did not play up. He was peering into the glass and merely murmured decidedly, this new pomade, it is a marvel for the mustache. Catching my eye, however, he added hastily, quite so, and how do you reply to your questions? Well, I hesitated. The little gray cells, Hastings, employ the little gray cells of the brain. They alone can solve a problem. But before I could answer, the door opened, 
and our landlady announced Inspector Jap. The Scotland Yard man was an old friend of ours, and we greeted him warmly. Ah, my good Jap, cried Poirot. And what brings you to see us? Well, Monsieur Poirot, said Jap, seating himself and nodding to me. I'm on a case that strikes me as being very much in your line, and I came along to know whether you'd care to have a finger in the pie. Poirot had a good opinion of Jap's abilities, though deploring his lamentable lack of method, but I, for my part, considered that the detective's highest talent lay in the gentle art of seeking favors under the guise of conferring them. It's this victory ball, monsieur, said Jap persuasively. Come now, you'd like to have a hand in that. Poirot smiled. My friend Hastings would, at all events. He was just holding forth on the subject. Mia s'était mon ami. Well, sir, said Jap condescendingly. You shall be in, too. I can tell you, it's something of a feather in your cap to have an inside knowledge of a case like this. Well, here's to business. You know the main facts of the case, I suppose, Monsieur Poirot. From the papers only had the imagination of the journalist is sometimes misleading. Recount the whole story to me, Jap crossed his legs comfortably and began. As all the world and his wife knows, on Tuesday, last, a grand victory ball was held. Every two-penny, half-penny hop calls itself that nowadays. But this was the real thing, held at the Colossus Hall and all London, and including young Lord Cronshaw and his party. His dossier interrupted Poirot? I should say. His bioscope, no. How do you call it? Biograph? Viscount Cronshaw was the fifth Viscount, 25 years of age, rich, unmarried, and very fond of the theatrical world. There were rumors of his being engaged to Miss Courtney of the Albany Theater, who was known to her friends as Coco, and who was, by all accounts, a very fascinating young lady. Good, continue. Lord Cronshaw's party consisted of six people. He himself, his uncle, the Honorable Eustace Beltane, a pretty American widow, Miss Malaby, a young actor, Chris Davidson and his wife, and last but not least, Miss Coco Courtney. It was a fancy dress ball as you know, and the Cronshaw party represented the old Italian comedy, whenever that may be. The Commedia dell'arte, murmured Poirot. I know. Anyway, the costumes were copied from a set of China figures, forming part of Eustace Beltane's collection. Lord Cronshaw was Harlequin, Beltane was Punchinello, Mrs. Malaby matched him as Pulcinella, and Davidson's were Perrault and Perret. And Miss Courtney, of course, was Columbine. Now quite early on the evening, it was apparent that there was something wrong. Lord Cronshaw was moody and strange in his manner. When the party met together for supper in a small private room engaged by the host, 
everyone noticed that he and Mrs. Courtney were no longer on speaking terms. She had obviously been crying and seemed on the verge of hysterics. The meal was an uncomfortable one, and as they all left the supper room, she turned to Chris Davidson and requested him audibly to take her home, as she was sick of the ball. The young actor hesitated, glancing at Lord Cronshaw, and finally drew him back to the supper room, but all his efforts to secure a reconciliation was, were unveiling, and he accordingly got a taxi and escorted the now-weeping Mrs. Courtney back to her flat. Although obviously very much upset, she did not confide on him, merely reiterating again and again that she would make old Kronk sorry for this. This is the only hint we have that her death might have not been accidental, and it's precious little to go on. By the time Davidson had quieted her down somewhat, it was too late to return to the Colossus Hall, and Davidson accordingly went straight home to his flat in Chelsea, where his wife arrived shortly afterwards, hearing the news of the terrible tragedy that occurred after his departure. Lord Cronshaw, it seems, became more and more moody as the ball went on. He kept away from his party and hardly saw him during the rest of the evening. It was about 1.30 a.m., just before the Grand Cotillion, when everyone was to unmask. That Captain Digny, a brother officer who knew his disguise, noticed him standing in a box, gazing down on the scene. Hello, Kronk, he called. Come down and be sociable. What are you moping about there for like a boiled owl? Come along. There is a good old rag coming on now. Right, res- right, responded Cronshaw. Wait for me. I'll never find you in the crowd. He turned and left the box as he spoke. Captain Digby and Mrs. Davidson with him waited. The minutes passed, but Lord Cronshaw did not appear. Finally, Digby grew impatient. Does the fellow think we're going to wait all night for him? He exclaimed irritably. At that moment, Mrs. Mabley joined them, and they explained the situation. Say now, cried the pretty widow vivaciously. He's like a bear with a sore head tonight. Let's go right away, and let's go right away, and rout him out. The search commenced, the search commenced, but met with no success until it occurred to Mrs. Mabley that he might possibly be found in the room where they had supped an hour earlier. They made their way there. What a sight met their eyes. There was Harlequin, sure enough, but stretched out on the ground with a table knife in his heart, Jep stopped. And Poirot nodded and said, with the relish of the specialist, Une belle affaire. And there was no clue to the perpetrator of the deed. But how should there be? Well, continued the inspector, you know the rest. The tragedy was a double one. Next day, there were headlines in all the papers and a brief statement to the effect that Mrs. Courtney, the popular actress, had been discovered dead on her bed and her death was due to an overdose of cocaine. Now, was it an accident or suicide? Her maid, 
who was called upon to give evidence, admitted that Miss Courtney was a confirmed taker of the drug, and a verdict of accidental death was returned. Nevertheless, we can't leave the possibility of suicide out of the account. Her death is particularly unfortunate, since it leaves us no clue now to the cause of the quarrel. The preceding night, by the way, a small enamel box was found on the dead man. It had cocoa written across the diamonds and was half full of, co of cocaine. It was identified by Miss Courtney's maid as belonging to her mistress, who nearly always carried it, carried it about with her since it contained her supply of the drug, to which she was fast becoming a slave. Was Lord Cronshaw himself addicting to the drug? Very far from it. He held unusually strong views on the subject of dope. Poirot nodded thoughtfully. But since the box was in his possession, he knew that Miss Courtney took it, suggestive that, is it not, my good job? Aha, said Jap rather vaguely. I smiled. Well, said Jap, that's the case. What do you think of it, Miss Worth? You found no clue of any kind that had not been reported? Yes, there was this. Jap took a small object from his po pocket and handed it over to Poirot. It was a small pom-pom of emerald green silk with some ragged threads hanging from it, as thought it had been wrenched violently away. We found it in the dead man's hand, which was tightly clenched over it, explained the inspector. Poirot handed it back without any comment and asked, Had Lord Cronshaw any enemies? None that anyone knows of. He seems to have been a popular young fellow who benefits by his death. His uncle, the Honorable Eustace Beltane comes into the title and estates. There are one or two suspicious facts against him. Several people declare that they heard a violent altercation going on in the little supper room and that Eustace Beltane was one of the disputants. You see, the table knife being snatched up off the table would fit in with the murder being done in the heat of quarrel. What does Mr. Beltane say about the matter? Declares one of the waiters was the worse for liquor and that he was giving him a dis dressing down. Also, that it was nearer one, one than half past. You see, Captain Digby's evidence fixes the time pretty accur accurately. Only about ten minutes elapsed between his speaking to Cronshaw and to finding the body. And in any case, I suppose, Mr. Beltane as Punchinello, was wearing a hump and a ruffle. I don't know the exact details of the costume, said Jap, Jap looking curiously at Poirot. And anyway, I don't quite see what that has got to do with it. No? There was a hint of mock mockery in Poirot's smile. He continued quietly, his eyes shining with green light. I had learnt to recognize so well. There was a curtain in this little supper room. Was there not? Yes, but with a space behind it sufficient to conceal a man? Yes, in fact, there was a small recess. But how you knew about it? You haven't been to the place, have you? No, my good Jap. I supplied the curtain from my brain. Without it in the drama, it is not reasonable. 
and always one must be reasonable. But tell me, did they not send for a doctor? At once, of course. But there was nothing to be done. Death must have been instantaneous. Poirot nodded rather impatiently. Yes, yes, I understand this doctor now. He gave evidence at the inquest? Yes. Did he say anything unusual symptoms? Was there nothing about the appearance of the body which struck him as being abnormal? Jap stared hard at the little man. Yes, Monsieur. Yes, Poirot. I don't know what you're getting at, but he did mention that it, there was a tension and stiffness about the limbs, which he was quite at a loss to account for. Aha! said Poirot. Aha, mon dieu, Jap. That gives one to think, does it not? I saw that it had certainly not given Jap to think. If you're thinking of poison, who on earth would poison a man first and then stick a knife into him? In truth, that would be ridiculous, agreed Poirot placidly. Now, is there anything you want to see? If you'd like to examine the room where the body was found. Poirot waved his hand. Inotur, there is not the slightest necessity. Do you want to question Miss Courtney's maid? Not in the least. You have told me the only thing that interests me, Lord Cronshaw's views on the subject of drug taking. Then there's nothing you want to see? Just one thing. What is that? The set of china figures from which the costumes were copied. Jap stared. Well, you're a funny one. You can manage that for me? Come round to Berkeley Square now, if you'd like. Mr. Beltane, or his lordship, as I should say now, won't object. We set off at once in a taxi. The new Lord Cronshaw was not at home, but at Jap's request, we were shown into the, into the china room where the gems of the collection were kept. Jap looked round him rather helplessly. I don't know how you'll ever find the ones you want, Musur. But Poirot had already drawn a chair in front of the mantelpiece and was hopping up upon it like a nimble robin. Above the mirror, on a small shelf to themselves, stood six china figures. Poirot examined them min minutely, addressing a few comments to us as he did. Le voila, you old Italian comedy. Three pairs. Harlequin and Columbine. Pierriot and Pierriette. Very dainty in white and green. And Punchinello and Pulcinella in mauve and yellow. Very elaborate, the costume of Punchinello, ruffles and frills, a hump, a high hat, yes, as I thought, very elaborate. He replaced the figures carefully and jumped down. I am satisfied, mon ami Jap. Jap looked unsatisfied, but as Poirot had clearly no intention of explaining anything, the detective put the best face he could upon the matter. As we were preparing to leave, the master of the house came in, and Jap performed an unnecessary introduction. The sixth Viscount Cronshaw was a man of about fifty, 
suave in manner, with a handsome, dissolute face. Evidently, the elderly Rue, with the languid manner, I took an instant dislike to him. He greeted us graciously enough, declaring he had heard great accounts of Poirot's skill, and placing himself at our disposal in every way. The police are doing all they can, I know, he said, but I much fear the mystery of my nephew's death will never be cleared up. The whole thing seems utterly mysterious. Poirot was watching him keenly. Your nephew had no enemies you know of? None whatever. I'm sure of that, he paused, and then went on. If there are any questions you would like to ask, only one. Poirot's voice was very serious. The costumes, they were reproduced exactly from Comedia? To the smallest detail. Thank you, Milior. That is all I wanted to be sure of. I wish you a good day. And what next? inquired Jap, as we hurried down the street. I've got to report at the yard, you know. Bye in. I will not detain you. I have one other little matter to attend to, and then, yes, this case will be complete. What? You don't mean it. You know who killed Lord Cronshaw? For fifty minute. Who was it? Eustace Beltane? Ah, mon ami, you know my little weakness. Always I have desired to keep the threads in my own hands up to the last minute. But have no fear. I will re reveal all when the time comes. I want no kudos. The affair shall be yours on one condition, that you permit me to play the Domini my own way. That's fair enough, said Jap. That is, if the Domini ever comes. But I say, you are an oyster, aren't you? Poirot smiled. Well, so long. I'm off to the yard. He strode off down the street, and Poirot hailed a passing taxi. Where are you going now? I asked in lively curiosity. To Chelsea, to see the Davidsons. He gave the address to the driver. What do you think of the new Lord Cronshaw? I asked. What say my good friend Hastings? I distrust him instinctively. You think he is the wicked uncle of the storybooks, eh? Don't you? Me? I think he was the most amiable towards us, said Poirot noncommittally, because he had his reasons. Poirot looked at me, shook his head sadly, and murmured something that sounded like no method. The Davidsons lived on the third floor of a block of mansion flats. Mrs. Davidson was out, we were told, but Mrs. Davidson was at home. We were ushered into a long, long a long low room with garnish oriental hangings. The air felt close and oppressive, and there was an overpowering fragrance of joss sticks. Mrs. Davidson came to us almost immediately. A small, frail creature whose fragility would have seemed pathetic and appealing had it not been for the rather shrewd and calculating gleam in her light blue eyes. Poirot explained our connection with the case, and she shook her head sadly. Poor Cronk. Poor Coco. 
too. We were both so fond of her. Her death has been terrible grief to us. What is it you want to ask me? Must I really go over all the dreadful evening again? Oh, madame, believe me, I would not harass your feelings unnecessarily indeed. Inspector Chap has told me all that is needful. I only wish to be permitted to see the costume you wore the night of the ball. The lady looked somewhat surprised, and Poirot continued smoothly. You comprehend, madame, that I work on the system of my country. There was always reconstruct the crime. It is possible that I may have actual representation, and, if so, you understand, the costumes would be important. Mrs. Davidston still looked a little doubtful. I've heard of reconstructing crimes, of course, she said, but I didn't know you were so particular about details. But I'll fetch the dress now. She left the room and returned almost immediately with a dainty wisp of white satin and green. Poirot took it from her and examined it, handing it back with a bow. Merci, madame. I see you had misfortune to lose one of your green pom-poms. The one on the shoulder here? Yes, it got torn off at the ball. I picked it up and gave it to poor Lord Cronshaw to keep it for me. That was after supper? Yes. Not long before the tragedy, perhaps? A faint look of alarm came into Mrs. Davidson's pale eyes. And she replied quickly, Oh no, long before that. Quite soon after supper, in fact. I see. Well, that is all. I will not derange you further. Bonjour, madame. Well, I said, as we emerged from the building. That explains the mystery of the green pom-pom. I wonder. Why, what do you mean? You saw me examine the dress, Hastings? Yes. Bien. The pom-pom that was missing had not been wrenched off, as the lady said. On the contrary, it had been cut off. My friend, cut off with scissors. The threads were all quite even. Dear me, I exclaimed. This becomes more and more involved. On the contrary, replied Poirot placidly. It becomes more and more simple. Poirot, I cried. One day, I shall murder you. Your habit of finding everything perfectly simple is exasperating to the last degree. But when I explain, mon ami, it is not always perfectly simple. Yes, that is the annoying part of it. I feel that I could have done it myself. As so you could, Hastings, so you could if you would but take the trouble of arranging your ideas without method. Yes, yes, I said hastily, for I knew Poirot's eloquence when started on his favorite theme only too well. Tell me, what do we do next? We visit Mrs. Maybelly. No. She can wait. 
that one. She will be at my little representation. You are really going to reconstruct the crime? Hardly that. Shall we say that the drama is over, but that I propose to add a little harlequinade? The following Tuesday was fixed upon by Poirot as that day for his mysterious performance. The preparations greatly intrigued me. A white screen was erected at one side of the room, flanked by heavy curtains on the other side. A man with some lighting apparatus arrived next, and finally, a group of members of the theatrical profession who disappeared into Poirot's bedroom, which had been rigged up as a temporary dressing room. Shortly before eight, Jap arrived, in no very cheerful mood. I gathered that the official de detective hardly approved of Poirot's plan. Bit melodramatic, like all his ideas, but there can do no harm, and he says it might save us a good bit of trouble. He's been very smart over the case. I was on the same scent myself, of course. I felt instinctively that Jap was straining the truth here. But there, I promised to let him play the thing out his own way. Ah, here are the crowd. His lordship arrived first, ex escorting Mrs. Malaby, who I had not yet seen. She was a pretty, dark-haired woman and appeared perceptibly nervous. The Davidsons followed. Chris Davidson also I saw for the first time. He was handsome enough in a rather obvious style, tall and dark with the easy grace of an actor. Poirot had arranged seats for the party facing the screen. This was illuminated by a bright light. Poirot switched out the other lights so that the room was the darkness except for the screen. Poirot's voice rose out of gloom. Messieurs, mesdames, a word of explanation. Six figures in turn will pass across the screen. They are familiar to you? Perrot and Perret, Punchinello, the buffoon, the elegant Pulsanella, beautiful Columbine, lightly dancing, Harlequin, the sprite, invisible to man? With these words of introduction, the show began. In turn, each figure that Poirot had mentioned bounded before the screen. Stayed there a moment, poised, and then vanished. The lights went up, and a sigh of relief went around. Everyone had been nervous, fearing they knew not what. It seemed to me that the proceedings had gone singularly flat. If the criminal was among us, and Poirot expected him to break down at the mere sight of a familiar figure, the device had failed, signally, as it was almost bound to do. Perhaps dealing with the impressionable Latin race, it might be different, but certainly in this case, the thing was a fiasco. Poirot, however, appeared not a whit discomposed. He stepped forward, beaming. Now, messieurs, mesdames, will you be so good to tell me one at a time? 
What is that we have just seen? Will you begin, Milor? The gentleman looked rather puzzled. I'm afraid I don't quite understand. Just tell me what you have been seeing. I, uh, well... I should say we have seen six figures passing in front of a screen and dressed to represent the personages in the old Italian comedy. Or, uh, ourselves the other night. Never mind the other night, milor, broke in Poirot. The first part of your speech was what I wanted. Madame, you agree with milor Cronshaw? He had turned as he spoke to Miss Mallaby. Uh, yeah, of course. You agree that you have seen six figures representing the Italian comedy? Why, certainly. Monsieur Davidson, you too? Yes. Madame? Yes. Hastings? Jap? Yes. You are all in accord? He looked around upon us. His face grew rather pale, and his eyes were green as my cat's. And yet, you are all wrong. Your eyes have lied to you, as they lied to you on the night of the victory ball. To see things with your own eyes, as they say, is not always to see the truth. One must see with the eyes of the mind. One must employ the little gray cells. No, then, that tonight, and on the night of the victory ball, you saw not six figures, but... Five. See? The lights went out again. A figure bounded in front of the screen. Perrette! Who is that? demanded Poirot. Is it Poirette? Yes, we all cried. Look again. With a swift movement, the man divested himself of his loose Perrette garb. garb. There, in the limelight, stood gl glittering Harlequin. At the same moment, there was a cry and an overturned chair. Curse you, snarled Davidson's voice. Curse you. How did you guess? Then come to the clink of handcuffs and Jap's calm, official voice. I arrest you, Christopher Davidson. Charge of murdering Viscount Cronshaw. Anything you say used is in evidence against you. It was a quarter of an hour late later. A riche little supper had appeared, and Poirot beaming all over his face, dispensing hospitality and answering our eager questions. It was all very simple. The circumstance in which green pom-pom were found suggested at once that it had been torn from the costume of the murderer. I dismissed Perrette from my mind since it takes considerable strength to drive a table knife home. And fixed upon Perrette as the criminal, but Perrault, but Perrette left the hall nearly two hours before the murder was committed. So he must either have returned to the ball later to lull Lord Cronshaw, or Abien, he must have killed him before he left. Was that impossible? Who had seen Lord Cronshaw after supper that evening? Only Mrs. Davidson, whose statement, I suspect, 
was a deliberate fabrication uttered with the object of accounting for the missing pom-pom, which, of course, she cut from her own dress to replace the one missing on her husband's costume. But then, the harlequin, who was seen in the box at 1.30, must have been an impersonation. For a moment earlier, I had considered the possibility of Mr. Beltane being the guilty party, but with his elaborate costume, it was clearly impossible that he could have doubled the roles of Punchinello and Harlequin. On the other hand, to Davidson, a young man of about, about the same height as the murdered man and an actor by profession, the thing was simplicity itself. But one thing worried me. Surely a doctor could not fail to perceive the difference between a man who had been dead two hours and one who had been dead ten minutes. Fabien. The doctor did perceive it, but he was not taken to the body and asked, How long has the man been dead? On the contrary, he was informed that the man had been seen alive ten minutes ago. So he merely commented at the inquest on the abnormal stiffenings of the limbs, for which he was quite unable to account. All was now marching famously for my theory. Davidson had killed Lord Concha immediately after supper. When you remember, he was seen to draw him back into the supper room. Then he departed with Miss Courtney, left her at the door of her flat. Instead of going in and trying to pacify her, he affirmed and returned post-haste to the Colossus, but as Harlequin, not Perrette. A simple transformation affected by removing his outer costume. The uncle of the dead man leaned forward, his eyes perplexed. But if so, he must have come to the ball prepared to kill with his victim. What earthly motive could he have had? The motive? That's what I can't get. Ah, there we come to the second tragedy, that of Miss Courtney. There was one simple point which everyone overlooked. Miss Courtney died of cocaine poisoning, but her supply of the drug was in the enamel box, which was found on Lord Cronshaw's body. Where, then, did she obtain the dose which killed her? Only one person could have supplied her with it. Davidson. And that explains everything. It accounts for her friendship with the Davidsons and her demand that Davidson should escort her home. Lord Contra was almost fanatically opposed to drug-taking, discovered that she was addicted to cocaine, and suspected that Davidson supplied it to her. Davidson doubtless denies this, but Lord Cronshaw determined to get the truth from Miss Courtney at the ball. He could forgive the wretched girl, but he could certainly have no mercy on the man who had who made a living by trafficking drugs. Exposure and ruin confronted Davidson. He went to the ball, determined that Cronshaw's silence must be obtained at no cost. Was Coco's death an accident then? I sus suspect that it was an accident cleverly engineered by Davidson. She was furiously angry with Cronshaw, first for his approaches and secondly from taking her cocaine from her. Davidson supplied her with more and probably suggested her augmenting the dose as a defiance to old Cronk. One other thing, I said. The recess and the curtain. How did you know about them? Why, mon ami? That was the most simple of all. Waiters had been in and out of that little room 
so obviously the body could not have been lying where it was found on the door. There must have been in some place in the room where it could be hidden. I deduced a curtain and a recess behind it. David said dragged the body there, and later, when drawing attention to himself in the box, he dragged it out again before finally leaving the ball. It was one of the best moves. He is a clever fellow. But in Poirot's green eyes, I read unmistakably the unspoken remark. But not so clever as Hercule Poirot. Okay, guys, so that was the affair at the Victory Ball, and if you guys like these, then I will do another one really, really soon, and as always, I hope you learned a lot. I'll see you all again soon.